for the reading of God's Word. We're in Romans chapter 15. Those of you new to the Christian faith, Romans 15 is near the back of the Bible after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, all that little section of Gospels and Acts together, you'll find Romans. Paul's been talking about the, val- the, the values of how we do community when we're very different people in chapters 14 and 15, kind of, he brings it to Ahead today in chapter 15. Listen to this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. Paul says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who, who, you, who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father Of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Grass withers, flower fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, there was a great uproar this past week on the internet. It was one of the biggest controversies in years. And it wasn't about politics, nor was it about some sports controversy like Deflategate. It was about this dress. There it is. Uh, This picture that you see on the screen caused great controversy and consternation, particularly around what the color of the dress is. Uh, for those of you not familiar, it came out online and people were asking, what color is it? And many, like me, saw a gold and white dress, while many others saw a black and blue dress. Now, all the while, we're all looking at the exact same picture. And the passion around the debate and the color of the dress was palpable and interesting, to say the least. You should know, and this is a bummer for me, uh, the real color of the dress is actually black and blue. But it turns out that some of us in seeing this picture see uh, the dress in different ways. It's it's somewhat of an optical illusion. And that optical illusion has to do with how our eyes perceive certain colors and certain light. Some of our eyes have what's called rods that pick up what pick up some aspects of color, while others have rods that pick up the other aspects of color. So in terms, really, of personal perspective, really both of our perspectives were right at the same time. And that is exactly what we've been talking about today, uh, in the last few weeks, really, in Romans 14 and 15, where in Romans 14, Paul has been at length talking about the problem of uh, matters of conscience that show up in our lifestyles that bump into each other sometimes. 
And the issue of spiritual perspective on lifestyle presented challenges to Christian community back in the uh, first century church of Rome. Uh, Now, you might remember what I've told you about how we do community with standards in community. We as the Christians in the gospel, in the word of God, have the law of God. We affirm there are rights and wrongs in how we do community. We as Christians also believe the gospel that... Uh, We are free in Christ in how we do life. There are many things in creation we can actually enjoy and are not forbidden uh, to participate in. And yet, at the same time, we not only have the law and freedom, but we also have these personal convictions, matters of conscience, of how God helps us to apply the Word of God to our lives in a very personal way that do not apply to everyone else in the church. Why does Paul give so much time to this issue of matters of of conscience in Romans? Well, the fact of the matter is he knows how church works, how it really works. (laughs) When a group of different Christians from different backgrounds and lifestyles get together in close-knit, Spiritual community conflicts arise. And Paul is exhorting Christians to live a life of love and to get clear from Scripture on what's worth fighting for and what's not worth fighting for. So how does Paul conclude his argument then in our text about Christian community and how people with very different convictions are to relate In matters of conscience. Well, I'm going to give you in a classic preacher form four shuns uh, that tell us how we're to relate in light of uh, differences in matters of conscience. Exhortation, explanation, supplication, and application. All right? So we're going to work on those four today together. And first, let's start with his exhortation. In verse 1, he says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So Paul here is summarizing all that he has taught in chapter 14 right here in in verse 1 of chapter 15. Christians have liberties in Christ. We can enjoy things in Christ and all that God has given in creation. However, when it comes to conflicts of how we perceive the dress, if you will, perceive the gifts of life in creation, one group of Christians has to step up and has to be the first to act in love, and that would be the strong in faith. According to our text, the strong in faith are those, if you will, who are clear on what the law of God says about what God actually wants of us and how we're to live in Him and what we're free to enjoy according to the law of God. And so Paul is calling the strong who know their Bible to be uh, to step up and not only to be uh, enjoy creation, but also to be have the ability to say no and restrain themselves when they might be acting in a way that harms the conscience of another brother. In other words, the strong in faith not only have the strength and the faith, the knowledge 
even the ability in the Holy Spirit to make good choices to enjoy things in life, but they also have the strength to humble themselves and say no when I know it's going to hurt my brother's uh, conscience. In fact, Paul goes on to use the language of obligation to uh, describe this loving duty that we're supposed to have with one another in community. Meaning, mature Christians are called to be the first to owe the debt of love, as Paul describes in Romans 13, to weaker brothers. On the other hand, the ESV in our text today describes the weaker types as having failings of the weak. Now, I have to tell you, I love the ESV so much. But this is one place where they get it really wrong. I think whoever translated it kind of missed what was going on in the Greek here, with all due respect. Uh, the better translation here is the limitations, the inabilities of the spiritually weaker or immature are the, are, are the things that must be paid attention to. What that means is this. Some Christians are just not, in their immaturity, are just not able or ready to enjoy the freedoms that they actually have in Christ. And you know what Paul's saying? That's okay for now. That's okay for now. Now that's Paul's general exhortation of verse 1. But in verse 2 he gets really specific in how this plays out in our daily lives with one another. Apparently, according to verse 2, it says this, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. There it is. Right in Scripture, we are told to please people. <laughs> How about that for you? Right in Scripture. And we're told to actually pay attention to the, what our neighbors want in life, in their lifestyles. And by the way, that word for neighbor is talking about those who are right beside us. Those who we encounter personally. Uh, that's what the neighbor is. And so here he's saying don't uh, cause the faith of a, of a weaker Christian to stumble. We actually need to please them. Now let's talk about pleasing people for a second. Because that's what he's saying in our text, right? Is Paul saying that we should please people by dancing around their desires no matter what all the time? Do we simply... Uh, Stick our finger in the air and say, what, is, what do they want, that person or that person want, and do what they want all the time? Well, the short answer is, of course, according to the law, not in every circumstance. Uh, the strong are still supposed to be, the mature are supposed to be people of principle. And we still say no on clear matters of the word of God. Now, let me give you a brief example. And guys, i got to tell you, another time I'm going to have to do a whole sermon on this uh, centered around 1 Corinthians 8. But um, let's talk about the problem that all of us now are going to face in a culture where um, homosexual marriage is actually being normalized. And that problem is this. Every one of us will have family members or friends who will invite us to their weddings, their homosexual weddings. What should we do? Is that a place where you please someone because that's what they want? Well, I'm going to have to preach on this another time. Boy, I wish I had more time. But the short answer is a very and highly relational no. We don't. Uh, 
However, it is clear that while we shouldn't please people in matters of law, of right and wrong, according to the Christian standard, we do have to seek to please people in matters of conscience. Here's how. We always seek to please God first and foremost, even in matters of conscience, when dealing with our brother and their own desires. But sometimes when God calls us to, well, when we seek to please God, sometimes he calls us to humble ourselves, to give up our liberties, our comforts, our enjoyments, so that we can look out for the good of others and build them up in the faith and not cause them to stumble. In other words, we please God first. He sends us to please other people in some circumstances. I'll give you an example of this. The Apostle Paul, when he went out and did mission in 1 Corinthians 9, it says, he says very plainly, to the, the one with the law, I became as one with the law. To the one without the law, I became as one without the law. And the result would be so that he could share the gospel with people culturally. He actually, in many ways, was seeking to please people in matters of conscience and culture, if you will, so that the gospel could get out in real ways. What this means is this. When we're in community with each other in matters of conscience, we have to learn how to please one another, especially the strong with the weak, much like you do in a marriage. Philip Yancey gives a great example and a great description of how Christian community is a lot like marriage. Imagine this, the, the kind of process of pleasing your spouse that goes on in a marriage and, and the kind of evolution of that, if you will. Before spouses get married, remember kind of as you're dating, for some of you who are even single as you're dating, your desire was to please your potential spouse and do everything you could to get to know them. You would do what they liked. You would take on the things they were interested in. That would be true from the man to the woman or even the woman to the man. After the marriage, that process of pleasing slows. And we might even say it sometimes reverses. Each starts to insist on their own rights, as Yancey says. Each begins to resist what the other one wants. But if a marriage is healthy and God and His grace helps people work through their own sanctification and their own growth issues in a marriage, what happens over time is after some years the process reverses again so that there is a new willingness to attend to what the other wants. This time, uh, not to catch a mate but out of a sincere desire to please because this is my lifelong partner in Christ, my spouse in Christ, and that we want to spend our life with them and therefore work together, even pleasing one another. The sad part about marriage in our time is that some spouses in many cases give up too quickly to wait for that time when they actually might seek to please one another anew. What Paul is saying, and what I'm telling you in this illustration is this. Don't give up on relationships, even when you disagree. Don't give up on matters of conscience, especially. Don't be a consumer of relationships. 
that the consumer says, am I getting what I want? Instead, mature Christians are called to humble themselves for a time and even please the younger, more immature Christians for a season before they get, get caught up on their walks with the Lord. Now, some of us here hear this exhortation, this first shun, and we think, now, wait a second. Jesus died to set us free from religiosity and unbiblical rules of don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with women who do. Why in the world would I give up that freedom to go back to don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with women who do? Well, Paul gives us two reasons or explanations in our text in verses 3 and 4. The first explanation is really the very core of the gospel in our text here. It's marvelous. And this is what he says in verse 3. Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul tells us we have a model. We have a model that's so powerful that it actually changed our lives personally, and we're called to emulate him in particularly Christ's life. Think about this for a second. Jesus leaves the glories of heaven where there's no sickness, no pain, no death, no sin, no hurtful relationships to come into our world, which is rife with brokenness and even hurtful relationships. He came into the world as the Son of God, a very broken world. I mean, would you leave paradise for anti-paradise? Well, he did that out of love. Love to enter in our world. Jesus did this for his glory, to prove he's unlike any other God. You know, all the other gods of the world... Even like uh, uh, Islam's God and, and Allah, uh, they stay away up there and somehow you spend your life trying to get to them. Christianity is radically different with the incarnation where he comes into our world and meets us in Jesus Christ. In fact, Philippians 2, what was read earlier by Daniel, says it very plainly that he took the nature of a servant, served men as the Lord of the universe... He serves men by healing and teaching, loving messy people, washing feet. And some of the messy people, even the ones he washed the feet of, were his own disciples. And they were his own disciples who in their zeal and their lack of knowledge of Scripture and even what Jesus was about would say dumb things like this. When Jesus said, I've got to eventually die, go to Jerusalem, die at the hands of the leaders... Remember what Peter says. Peter said, no way, man. You're not going to die. That's not going to happen. Jesus, of course, tells him, get behind me, Satan. Another time his disciples are, are not happy that they're getting resistance from people who don't like them preaching the gospel on behalf of Christ. And they say, hey, can we just start praying that God will bring down lightning and fire upon them and judge them? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're about. Jesus was very patient in each case, gently admonishing them and actually really leading them to understand the larger truth, enduring their misunderstanding of the gospel. He stuck with them. He stuck with them even 
when they were being foolish in their, in their religious zeal. Ultimately, Jesus went to the cross. And that might be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate giving of self uh, for broken people who ditched him. That's that, his disciples ditched him when times were hard. In fact, Paul goes on to quote uh, Psalm 69 in our text where he's talking about how, um, where David, particularly when he's praying that prayer, is talking about how the reproaches of them uh, were put upon me. David clearly understood at that time that sometimes you go through hardship even though you're being faithful. And that's very contrary to the gospel we hear in our age, the very American gospel. It says this, if I behave with God, he will bless me. But in point of fact, what happens in the scripture throughout is if you follow Jesus, you will encounter pain. The question is, how will you respond to that pain when it comes in Jesus? That same psalm it just sums it up really well where David prays multiple times. Don't let your people be shamed because of me and how I respond poorly under pain. And that's what Jesus gave to us. He responded Perfectly, righteously under pain and did it even unto death for us. How do we understand what Jesus did and how that plays into how we treat our brothers? What was it that he did as an act of love so that he gave up his freedoms and liberties and glories in heaven to be with us? And the short answer is this love in our day, looks like giving up your rights. Ooh. Now, if you guys want to stone me because you're Americans and we love our rights, you can start right now. But Christianity is very different. In America, world, we claim our rights. Give me my rights. And the whole front page of the newspaper is about that. But in Christianity, real love means you actually give up your rights. <laughs> This, by the way, is an important secret to doing marriage, to doing parenting. When you stop saying, give me life on my terms the way I want it, and you start listening to the Lord and what he wants in relationship that he's put into your life. Giving up rights is the key way that we actually move from being masters in our liberties to slaves in our liberties. Here's what a Luther says. Martin Luther said, A Christian is a most free Lord of all, subject to none but Christ. And a Christian, and a Christian is, a most dutiful servant to all, subject to all. Both are true. We are free from all and subject to all. That's the tension we live in as Christians when we do community together. Okay. Christ has given us this example of giving up rights. What's the second reason he gives in our text for why we need to please others uh, in matters of conscience? Verse 4 says it. says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Paul turns our attention from Christ to the rest of Scripture and says, Hey, if you're struggling with pleasing another person in matters of conscience of giving up your rights, go to the Word of God. The Word of God is what gives us 
all kinds of instruction, examples, uh, directives to show us how to sacrifice and give up ourselves as living sacrifices for the good of another. Really, I would say at this point in this year of grounding that Paul is not only affirming the authority of Scripture, he's also affirming implicitly the necessity of Scripture for you and for me in our walks with the Lord. If you are struggling with hope today in your relationships, say your marriage, with your uh, larger family of origin, other things, even relationships in your neighborhood, your workplace, if you're struggling that you just have despair and lack hope, go to the Bible. Listen to what God has done in redeeming relationships, in redeeming his people, even out of trouble. The Bible is how we gain hope. You cannot come up with truth on your own. You need God to speak truth that breaks through our confined sense of what is true and right. Indeed, here's a thought for unbelievers who may be in our midst. Um, Using the Bible, even uh, participating and listening to the Bible, uh, in that Paul isn't talking about the Bible as a mere inspiring document, like chicken soup for the soul. He's talking about the Bible as an inspired document, written by God, so we might get the big picture. So many times when I'm struggling with relationships, even in matters of conscience, even in matters of law with other people, to go to the Word of God, you hear the truth, the big picture of what's really going on, and a real sense of how we truly are to treat people who are different than us in our values. But sometimes it's a holy difference. So, how does this work? Scripture. When you read it, gives believers examples of what God can do for a greater good, even though there were temporary sacrifices and pains. Let's think of Joseph. Remember Joseph, one of the patriarchs? Uh, Think of Joseph in prison, coaching various leaders of Pharaoh's kingdom on their dreams and not getting credit for it for years. He was forgotten. He was a forgotten man and imprisoned even longer than he had hoped until, in God's time, God raised him up to head Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man to even provide for his own family during the worst famine in that part of the world in that season of history. He served. He waited on the Lord. He served. He waited on the Lord. He Gave, even though he didn't get something in return. When you are in the heat of community and personal conflicts over matters of conscience, read the Word of God to see how others sacrificed their desires for a greater good so that they might have a different reward. Now, This brings up the real question. How do you keep going when people present challenges to you where they have a value, a matter of conscience that is very different than yours? How do you keep going uh, actually pleasing them 
versus trying to please yourself? The answer is in our text. It's hope. Hope in the Lord. And here's what hope in the Lord looks like. When you are faced with a challenge, a hardship of having to submit to another's needs, you can do it by hope. And here's what hope looks like. When you hope in the Lord, you can submit and sacrifice for the short term, even for the long term in some cases, knowing that you will gain a reward. We don't talk much about rewards anymore because we don't want it to sound like we're working for our salvation because we don't deserve our salvation and we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ. Nonetheless, the scriptures are full of promises that when you give people what they don't deserve, grace, you actually get it in return. If not now, then in eternity. And the rewards are mind-boggling how great they are. That is what we pursue and have a hope in whenever we're giving up our rights and not enjoying this little segment of our lives by attending to our brother's needs. If you please a brother in matters of conscience, you will be honored by God in history, in time and space at some point. So... We've heard Paul's exhortation. We've even heard his explanations. But what about supplications? Well, look at verse 5 with me in this text. Look at what this says. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Paul's spontaneous prayer. In the midst of this call of these people uh, to get along with each other on matters of conscience, he breaks out in prayer and he prays that they would be blessed as a people. And with Christians hanging out and so many personal connections, he longs that God would so weave them together in their relationships that they actually bring glory to God in their differences with one voice. This is the tension we hold in the community of faith. There are few communities in the world that can have law, uh, gospel and liberty, as well as matters of conscience that drive us and help us to stay related to one another and close. Jesus prayed for this very thing in John 17 when he prayed that the church would be unified around him. And that's what makes us different, is in the end, we don't so focus on our desires as we focus on his pleasure, seeking his honor and what we do. And that somehow connects us together, even in our differences and freedoms in Christ. For believers and non-believers here, this is the extraordinary nature of what Christ does in the church. He brings different people together from different origins, different values, and he unifies them under himself. And this is what it really means for the the world today. That means the church is called to practice true tolerance. True tolerance. Why do I say true tolerance? Well, true tolerance is... um, 
is, the, is we live together and are willing to enter each other's lives and accommodate one another's lives while holding to our convictions. The world's idea of tolerance is this. Live and let live. Live and let live. But I'll tell you where live and let live ends up. That is not biblical tolerance. That's worldly tolerance. And here's where it ends up. It ends up in contempt. That you let those people over there do what they want. While we do what we want. Contempt that leads to tribalism. But the Christian faith is very different. We say for those who are in Christ, we actually live and get in each other's lives. So that it's not just you over there, but I want you to be a part of us. And I want to be a part of you in your life. I will adapt to you. Because this is a matter of conscience, it's not a matter of law. I am to love you, even giving up my own preferences in life. This is what real community is made of. Is this true tolerance where I have my convictions and yet I adapt on matters of conscience. That brings me to an important question for all of us today, including me. And that is, what is your standard What is your functional prayer in community for each other with your differences? Is it live and let live? Or is it, Lord, help me to live and engage in life with my brother or sister who's different than me? Especially and even with matters of conscience. That's what Paul gets to when he says in verse 7, Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That's it. Live and let live is what the world says. Welcome is what Christianity says. You belong. If you're in Christ, we are in you and you are in me. I am together with you in the same family, even with our differences. The beauty of this is that no other community in the world does this. Mark Knowles says it well. He says, in all the other communities of the world, there are these just so, they get so radically different and tribal in how they do things, they go to war with each other. But in Christianity, we stick to the truth at our core, but we can actually adapt to different cultures. Islam can't do that. But Christianity can because God's so wise, he sees this place where culture fits in with matters of conscience. Our call today is to actually love one another in such a way that we welcome the differences, particularly around matters of conscience. And you know what happens when a group of people this big or even bigger or even smaller do that together in a community? Glory happens. The glory of God. Where he The world looks on and thinks there is no way that guy would be with that guy or that woman would be with that woman or that person would be with that person unless God were involved. Unless there's a Savior who brings them together. That's glory. The beauty of what God does in us and for Himself. So, 
In conclusion, I have a story to tell you. This past summer, Isaiah Austin, a star college basketball player out of Baylor University, was moved to tears at the NBA draft. You see, Austin was a high school basketball player years ago and a phenom at around seven feet tall, very athletic. But when he got to college, he struggled with basketball. To be sure, he didn't struggle when he was on the court. He was still an excellent player on the court. His struggle was with his health on and off the court. You see, Isaiah Austin has a rare disease called Marfan syndrome that is so bad that parts of his body are literally falling apart, muscles pull apart, and in his case, his retina and his eye had detached because of Marfan disease. And being in the rigors of bouncing and running and bumping in basketball only did more damage to his body. And so at the end of his college career last spring, he stunned everyone, a sure draftee, and said he would not sit for the draft because of his disease and that he was retiring from basketball after his years at Baylor. He also stunned everyone in that the sense he wouldn't even put his name in the NBA um, basketball draft. He was too weak. He couldn't make it. He was just not up to actually playing in the league. And the surprising thing was he and his family were invited to the NBA draft. And at the NBA draft last June, one after the other, future NBA greats, even some of his friends, were drafted that night. He had no idea that what was coming as they Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, called out places like Charlotte and New York and L.A. drafting different people. But after saying teams like that, Silver, Adam Silver surprised everyone by saying the following. The NBA, the whole league, selects Isaiah Austin. To the stand, to a standing O, Austin came forward and was welcomed among his peers as an honorary draftee of the NBA and was included despite his weaknesses that would keep him from playing basketball for the rest of his life. This is what Christ has done for you and for me. He has drafted us when we were completely unable to save ourselves. He has called us into his people, and he calls us to do the same with one another, to welcome one another as he has welcomed us. So I tell you today, folks, a command from Scripture and a call to love is welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you today that you called us to this high calling of, of being your children and of actually welcoming each other in our differences, uh, our differences that are debatable, that are adiaphora, that are different, but Lord, even cultural, but Lord, you have called us to be together to make an extraordinary community where only you could be the author of this thing. 
So we give you glory that you welcomed us personally, that you have put different people in our lives in this church and even fellow Christians from other churches together, that we in our differences can actually bring more glory to you. Praise your name that you made us this way, that you called us this way, and that the design of the church is far more glorious than we could have ever dreamed. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with us. Yeah. Mm-hmm.